0: Hello, and welcome to the May 2017 episode of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, now the Robert F. Wagner Professor of Labor and Employment Law at New York Law School, uh, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. First up this month, we already discussed uh, this month's cover story and last month's podcast, but there's maybe a few details you can add before we move on to something else, Art?
1: Yeah. uh, One thing, of course, is that uh, what happens after the Supreme Court sends the case back to the Fourth Circuit. And uh, the Fourth Circuit uh, in this Title IX case uh, now has sort of had the rationale for its original panel decision pulled out from under it because the Trump administration withdrew the Obama administration's interpretation of Title IX, but didn't substitute anything in its place. (laughs) They said it needs more study. Uh, So basically, the task for the Fourth Circuit now is to treat the appeal by GG from uh, the trial judge's dismissal of his Title IX claim on the merits without deferring, because there's no administrative interpretation to defer to. Uh so uh presumably the fourth circuit will be considering that. Uh in the meantime uh our uh, cover story for this month uh includes that uh one of the judges uh Andre Davis uh issued an opinion sort of attached to that short uh notice that uh you know they were dissolving the existing injunction uh that was granted uh by the trial judge in response to their prior panel ruling. Uh, And the injunction really doesn't matter for much anymore anyway because uh, Mr. Grimm has graduated and we're not aware that there are any other transgender students at the Gloucester County Schools who are asking to use the restrooms. Uh, So at the moment, it's just a a legal question. Uh, But Judge Davis praised the case, uh, praised uh, Gavin Grimm for bringing the case and for being a spokesperson for civil rights, being a leader, he said. For civil rights it's pr- pretty something to have a federal court of appeals judge hail you as a high school senior as a civil rights leader and uh i think we should take note you know we talk about these cases uh and uh we don't always have a lot of time to talk about the plaintiffs as individuals but the plaintiffs in lgbtq rights civil rights litigation are heroes And they're putting themselves forward, they're putting themselves out there, they're being much more open than perhaps they would have been in their private life, Uh, and they're taking one for the team, you know, they're taking on the the burden of being a representative uh, for uh, a very large group of diverse people. So uh,
0: and he was also recently named to the Time Magazine 100 most most influential influential people. Yeah, pretty cool.
1: That's pretty amazing. Uh, And meanwhile, on the on the underlying issue of whether federal sex discrimination laws uh, violate, uh, uh, rather sexual orientation violates federal sex discrimination laws, or gender identity violates federal sex discrimination laws, we have lots of moving parts going on. Uh, In April. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals heard oral argument on the challenge to uh, the uh, nationwide injunction that was given by a federal district judge in Texas in joining the enforcement of Title IX in gender identity cases. So we should be having a decision on that before too long, although it's possible because uh, the Trump administration is changing its interpretation of Title IX that that will be considered moot. Uh, We do have... On-bank petitions on file on the sexual orientation issue in the Second Circuit, in the Christensen case and in the Zarda case, and in the Eleventh Circuit, in the Evans case, chances are very good that uh, we'll get on-bank hearings in both circuits. And uh, to be reported in the June issue of the Law Notes, a federal district judge just the day before we are recording this podcast uh, issued a decision refusing to dismiss a sexual orientation discrimination claim under Title VII. Uh, more details about that next month. But uh, basically, the judge says, "Look, things are sort of up in the air right now. It's not time to dismiss."
0: The, uh, the Second like Circuit will be, yeah.
1: The Second Circuit will be addressing this. The Seventh Circuit just decided in the Hively case. Uh, huh. I'm not going to dismiss this claim right now. Uh, this this plaintiff doesn't deserve to be caught in this sort of lacuna yep. uh, when we're expecting a decision of some sort. Uh, so that 's going on, and then of course, the the case you wanted to start with, yeah, uh, we have today. our
0: first uh, ruling under the Federal Fair Housing Act uh, to really extend its protections to sexual orientation and gender identity uh, out in Colorado.
1: Yeah, this is uh, a, a ruling by u s District Judge Raymond Moore in the case of Smith versus Avanti decided on April fifth it's a lambda legal case with cooperating attorneys from Holland and Hart. Uh, representing a same-sex couple, one of whom is transgender, uh, in a housing sex discrimination case that was brought under the Federal Fair Housing Act, as well as Colorado's anti-discrimination law, which explicitly forbids discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity in housing. Uh, The Fair Housing Act, which dates back to the 1960s, banned sex discrimination. Uh, During the Obama administration, Toward the end of the Obama administration, when they were reacting to cases like Windsor and Obergefell, uh, a lot of the agencies uh, followed the lead of the EEOC in opining that the sex discrimination laws that they enforced would also cover sexual orientation and gender identity. And uh, the Department of Housing was one of those departments. Whether under its current leadership that will continue to be their view is a question one could debate. But meanwhile, it was really important to get some judicial precedence on the matter. Uh, so now we have a ruling from a federal district judge. Uh, this couple uh, had to move out of their apartment. They had been married for five years. They have two children. Uh, they had to move out because the landlord was selling the building to somebody who evidently wanted to convert it to a different use. Uh, they went out to Craigslist. They found a listing uh, that was placed there by uh, the defendant in this case, Deepika Avanti, was the owner of some uh, townhouses. They went to look. This is in Gold Hill, Colorado, a relatively small community, we're told. They went to look. They thought the place was perfect for them in terms of proximity to their work and good public schools and the the overall setting. Uh, The uh, landlord was told before they even went to look at the place that one member of the couple was a transgender woman. And uh, the landlord, uh, Ms. Avanti, said, well, could you send me a photograph of your family? So they sent a photograph, and evidently that didn't deter her. So she brought them, and not only did she show them uh, that particular townhouse, but she showed some other rental properties she had, and she introduced them to the tenants in the adjacent townhouse. And uh, after they had gone through this uh, procedure, and they had indicated that they were very interested in uh, in renting the place, Uh, she responded to them that the next-door neighbors were opposed because they were afraid of noise from the children. And she said, after discussing with my husband, we like to maintain a low profile in this town, and we're afraid because of your unique family that it would become the the topic of conversation, and it would wreck our ability to maintain a low profile, so we're not going to rent you the place. Uh, And time was, was running out on the Smiths because... They had to vacate the apartment they were in, and they ended up uh, moving in with uh, one of their mothers and having to live there for a while while they found another place, which was not as convenient. But in the meantime, they uh, filed suit under the Federal Fair Housing Act and the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, uh, claiming that they were discriminated against because of their sex and their gender identity. And the judge said, uh, this is sort of difficult, Tenth Circuit. Precedent applies. And in the Tenth Circuit, this is one of those circuits that's trying to draw this line between sex and sexual orientation and gender identity, and to say that laws that ban sex discrimination do not automatically ban sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. But if the plaintiff can plausibly allege discrimination because of nonconformity to sex stereotypes, under the theory dating back to the Price Waterhouse case in 1989 then we can treat that as sex discrimination. And so uh, Judge Moore, having to comply with circuit precedent, says to the extent they're alleging discrimination because of sexual orientation or gender identity in violation of the Fair Housing Act, I cannot entertain that claim, but I can entertain the claim that they're being discriminated against because uh, Rachel Smith does not conform to gender stereotypes. Uh, so on that basis, I can let it go forward. But then, having found a basis under federal law for jurisdiction, he's got the supplementary state law claims, and Colorado state law specifically covers sexual orientation and gender identity. So no problem there. Uh, and ultimately, he finds it's, it's easy to conclude that plaintiffs are entitled to summary judgment on their claims under both the Fair Housing Act on the sex stereotyping theory and state law directly Uh, under sexual orientation and gender identity and both sexual orientation and gender identity because uh, both spouses identify as women both the transgender woman and the cisgender woman who is a lesbian so it's a lesbian marriage involving a transgender woman a modern family Yes, modern family. And modern family wins uh, summary judgment. It'll be interesting to see if the landlord uh, takes us to the 10th Circuit to see what happens there.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, We'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll discuss a custody decision in New York that presented a new fact pattern for a judge to consider against the recently revised test for parental standing. All right, we are back. A Manhattan judge ruled against a woman who went to court to prove that she should be considered a legal parent to a child adopted by her former same-sex partner. Can you tell us about it, Art?
1: Yeah, this is uh, a ruling by Justice Frank Nervo in Supreme Court New York County involving uh, a couple who are identified in the opinion only by their initials. Uh, But there uh, there is press reporting about the case, which includes their names.
0: Kelly Gunn and Circe Hamilton.
1: Kelly Gunn and Circe Hamilton. Uh, So Hamilton is the adoptive parent of a child from Ethiopia. And uh, she and Gunn had been partners for several years, uh, but their partnership broke up before this adoption took place. It it seems they had uh, talked about adopting, they had planned to adopt the child, although uh, from the evidence recited by Judge Nervo from extensive hearings that he had in this case, uh, uh, Ms. Gunn had expressed reservations about the plan. But at any rate, uh, they, uh, they had a written uh, partnership agreement, which they executed early in their partnership, but then when they uh, decided to split up, they executed a new agreement under which there was division of assets and uh, payments and all sorts of things. And it wasn't until 10 months later, after they executed the document dissolving their partnership, that Hamilton was contacted by the adoption agency about the availability of this Ethiopian youngster. Uh, And she went ahead with the adoption. And after... She uh, went to Ethiopia to uh, adopt the child and take the child back to New York. She flew through London, which is her hometown, actually, and was met there by Kelly Gunn, who had arranged to be there. She had a business trip, and she arranged to be there to take the last leg of the flight back to New York and to establish her first contact with the child. And subsequently, she had a continuing role with the child. Uh, and the big dispute in the case is what exactly was the nature of that role, and to what extent could we find, or could Judge Justice Nervo find, based on the record before him, that there was a mutual agreement that she was a co parent, Ms. Gunn. Uh, she claims, in retrospect, based on all the evidence of the contact she had with the child, that she should be deemed a co parent and entitled to sue for custody, and uh, what may have sparked the timing of this case, at least in part, the idea that uh, Hamilton was thinking of relocating back to England with the child. And that would, of course, make it difficult for Gunn to maintain a continuing relationship. Uh, Very emotional case. And and part of the problem is the Brook S v decision, which in August of 2016 overruled the old Allison D. case and said that a same-sex co-parent could establish standing under certain circumstances to uh, contest custody after the breakup of a relationship is written in very cautious language by uh, the late Judge Sheila Abdul Salam for the court. Uh, and she basically said, look, we decide the cases before us. And in Brooke, it was a combination of two cases, both of which involved donor insemination, a couple who planned together, uh, who did the pregnancy together, uh, who raised the child together for some period of time before they split up. And in that situation, the Court of Appeals said uh, Allison D., which was a very similar fact pattern, is overruled, and now we're going to say that when there is a mutual agreement and a plan uh, that is executed and carried out by a same-sex couple to have a child through donor insemination and to raise it together, that could provide a basis for standing as a co-parent for the non-biological mother and she specifically said, in the opinion, uh, because the case isn't before us, we really have no cause in this opinion to take on the question of adoptions or to take on the question of the formation of relationships after a child is born or adopted uh, you know where where uh, let's say you have uh, a lesbian mom." who has a child she's raising and forms a relationship with another woman that becomes close and the other woman becomes close to the child who uh, treats her as its parent, etc. Well that's a different fact pattern. That's a different set of facts and uh, in this Brooke SB case, uh, the court said we're not analyzing those facts, we're analyzing these facts. On the other hand, they overruled Alice and Dee. and they didn't say it's just a partial overruling, they said we hereby overrule the Alice and Dee case. Uh, so clearly the Court of Appeals is open to arguments about other factual situations. They just haven't decided yeah. them yet.
0: I think they wanted to see it, have, the, have the lower courts right. sort of develop the law. and
1: What's going to arise? Yeah. What questions? And, and so Justice Nervo was faced with a situation where the facts before him do not map the facts in Brooke SB. Because in this case, uh, although these women did have a plan while they were partners to have an adoption and specifically to adopt a child from outside the United States. Uh, they had a plan, but the plan was not executed before they split up. And the child was not adopted by both of them. It was just adopted by Ms. Hamilton uh, a significant period of time after the breakup. Uh, when she brought the child back, Kelly Gunn forms a relationship with the child, uh, becomes emotionally attached to the child, is uh, performing some of what you might describe as parental-type functions with respect to the child, but is not specifically and openly identified as a co-parent. And in fact, Ms. Hamilton describes her as a godmother or a close friend who is assisting at various times. And, you know, this is heavily disputed. This case went uh, for an extended hearing. Uh, What happened is two days after Brooke S.B. was decided, just two days after it was decided, Kelly Gunn, filed her motion with the court uh, seeking emergency temporary relief to enjoin Hamilton from taking the child to London and seeking a uh, determination of custody and visitation rights. And uh, the case was initially assigned to a motion judge who granted the interim relief and then uh, assigned for trial to uh, Justice Nervo who and held lengthy hearings. Justice Nervo is a member of legal yeah, by the way. Yeah, so he's not someone who so doesn't He's not hostile. gay people. He's not hostile to same-sex parents yep. or anything. So, and, and he, in stating his conclusion, he says, upon the presentation of the evidence of both parties, over 36 days of testimony, constituting a hearing transcript of 4,738 pages, 215 exhibits on behalf of petitioner, that's gunned, 126 exhibits on behalf of respondent Hamilton, The court finds the petitioner has on numerous occasions stated that she did not want to be a parent and gave no indication to either respondent, Hamilton, or third parties that she either wanted this role or acted as a parent. That is, based on all the testimony presented, Justice Nervo came to the conclusion that until she filed this lawsuit, she had never claimed any right to be a parent. Uh, That's his conclusion based on the evidence. Therefore, he wrote, she has failed to establish by clear and convincing evidence that she has standing as a parent under domestic relations law, Section 70, as established in matter of Brook SB. And in Brook SB, the court said the standard has to be clear and convincing evidence. We're not going to allow someone who is not uh, formally legally related to the child to step in on the basis of merely a preponderance of the evidence to place in question, the best interest of the child as to who should be their parent. I mean, that's because we have constitutional issues lingering in the background about the constitutional due process rights of biological parents, which is always sort of in the background, even if it isn't discussed. Mm-hmm. There has to be a pretty substantial showing of a justification to invade that autonomous right of the parent to raise their child, and requiring a a parent to prove that it's in the best interest of the child not to recognize someone else uh, as a co-parent or to have legally enforceable visitation rights there has to be some level of standing attached uh, you, you don't want someone whose relationship is based on being a babysitter or just a good friend or something like that, it has to be more uh, Gunn presented evidence that the nature of her relationship was more than just a babysitter I mean it's clear that she she had a much stronger, much deeper relationship with this child and a relationship that was tolerated to a large extent by the child's legal parent, but it's not based on an agreement as such. And to, the, to, to Justice Nervo, this was a key point. He said he accepted the argument by Hamilton that once their relationship dissolved and they executed their separation agreement and they untangled their finances and their property ownership and everything else, he said any joint plan died at that point as well. And, in fact, when Hamilton got word from Ethiopia that there was this child that she could adopt, uh, she let Gunn know and Gunn encouraged her, but did not at that point say, let's do it together or I want to be the parent to this child as well. Uh, that's the basis of his finding, that there's no indication that she indicated, that she said expressly that she wanted to be. So it's sort of hard to find by clear and convincing evidence that there is a mutual mutual agreement that both women will be parents of this child. So it's difficult. Yeah. And and the appellate division, when they look at this, they could come to a different conclusion about how to deal with Brooke S. B. as a precedent. Uh, Justice Nervo sort of took the court at its word that it wasn't deciding these other issues, which could have left it open for him, perhaps, to be a little more open to this. But he followed what he thought was shown by the evidence. Uh, and... It is unlikely that the appellate division will reweigh the evidence or his factual findings. Uh, so the question will be, what is the legal significance of the factual findings? What is the legal significance of the factual distinctions between this case and the two cases in Brooke SB? Are the distinctions significant enough to justify a different result, which is what Justice Nervo seemed to believe.
0: I'll just throw out there as a devil's advocate, uh, I know some people I've talked to have quibbled that he doesn't really give any weight to the bond the child might have with Kelly Gunn, um, and that that is sort of uh, this is an overly formalistic sort of uh, opinion that sort of overlooks what may be a very deep relationship and may be harmful to the child to lose. so um, yeah, but it's again, a, it's,
1: it's an incredibly difficult case. Yeah. I and mean, he, he stayed. His ruling uh, to give uh, uh, to give Kelly Gunn time to file an appeal and to ask the appellate division to continue the stay yeah. uh, because what we have uh, initially was uh, interim relief that was uh, issued by Judge Cooper when the case was first filed and uh, that gets dissolved as a result of Judge Justice Nervo's decision uh, unless he stays his decision so he stays it and the appellate division could grant uh, an extension of the uh, of the stay while it's considering the appeal, and the significance of that being that Hamilton can't relocate to London with the child. Right. Uh, I don't know to what extent uh, Gunn has continuing contact. I think under the interim relief, she was entitled to continuing contact.
0: Yeah, I think she's allowed to see the child once a week or right. something like that at this point. Uh,
1: and, so, and the attorneys, in their reaction, they were quoted in the New York Times, Nan- Nancy Chemtaub who was Gunn's attorney, was quoted as saying, uh, she believes this decision doesn't follow the Brooke case. And Bonnie Rabin, who was one of Ms. Hamilton's lawyers, uh, said the ruling should allay concerns that a trusted caretaker could suddenly claim parental rights under the state's expanded definition of marriage. That's how the Times summarized her comment and quoted her. That would be scary to parents. And this is one of the issues, uh, it's, it's most often articulated in connection with donor insemination cases where the concern is that the donor will change his mind and decide to try to assert parental rights. Uh, not, not as often in, uh, in a case with this kind of fact pattern. But it is, it is a lingering concern for, uh, for lesbian parents. So there are arguments on both sides of this one, and we'll be watching closely to see what the appellate division does with it.
0: All right, we'll take another short break, and when we return, we'll discuss a California appellate court decision extending constitutional equal protection principles for jury selection to sexual orientation. We are back. A California appellate court followed the lead of the federal uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and extended what are known as Batson challenges, traditionally limited to race and gender, to sexual orientation. Uh, And as I just mentioned to Art, there's a very dramatic sort of soap opera fact pattern that underlies this case. Um, In October 2011, a closeted man patronized a gay male escort. Uh, but apparently, did not pay all that he had promised to pay when he when he left. So the boyfriend of the escort, whose name is Brady D. Douglas, decided to chase him in a high speed car chase uh, that involves shooting at the the man who patronized the escort. Uh, from his car to and, and then swerving into each other's car, so it was sort of like a. I guess out in Los Angeles, they oftentimes get to watch these car chases on television. I mean, I wonder if it was something like that. Uh, but anyway, the the man got away eventually safely after one of the the cars collided and the, the Brady Douglas's car apparently went off the road. Um, anyway, uh, the police later got involved. They've they realized that uh, the man who patronized the escort, actually was lying when he originally spoke to the police about uh, what sort of started this whole episode. Uh, But they got uh, more facts and eventually charged uh, Brady D. Douglas with a series of crimes. Uh, He eventually was convicted of attempted second-degree robbery, assault with a semi-automatic firearm, shooting at an occupied motor vehicle, drawing or exhibiting a firearm against a person in a motor vehicle, and carrying a loaded firearm with intent to commit a felony. All right so that's uh sort of the the things he was charged with, but the more interesting uh facts for this purposes of this story are what happened during jury selection for his criminal trial and during jury selection, it became clear that two of the potential jurors who are known as d j and s l uh, were openly gay men that lived with male partners and the prosecution eventually struck both of them using its peremptory uh, strikes to get them off of the what was the final and panel jury. And they sort of had uh, purported reasons for doing this. Uh, the first guy was friends with a local public defender, and he mentioned during questioning that uh, his, his friend had described the prosecutor's office as the dark side. Um so the prosecutor thought he might have leanings or biases uh, against the prosecution. The other uh SL uh purportedly gave very short answers to his questions and a much more favor- had a much more favorable demeanor to defense counsel. Um so those were the reasons offered uh, as to why uh they excused these potential jurors, but the defense counsel made sort of a a bold move and and brought up to the judge after these guys were excused that uh, there is a line of cases establishing that you cannot excuse people uh, from jurors purely based on their, uh, their race or their gender. And this is um, it's named after the Supreme Court case that uh, held this originally under the federal constitution. Uh, the case was Batson versus Kentucky in 1986. And previous to that, the California Supreme Court had made this, uh, concluded that th- the same constitutional principles apply under the state constitution in a case called People versus Wheeler. So when a, a party raises these challenges during jury selection, it's known as a Batson or a Wheeler uh, motion. So anyway, the judge, out of an abundance of caution, accepted a Batson or Wheeler Challenge based on sexual orientation. Um, in 2014, the Ninth Circuit had extended Batson to sexual orientation, so there is some basis for uh, taking such a motion. Um, and he he did out of caution, but he said the the reasons that the prosecution has offered for DJ and SL are permissible and does not seem to be. Uh, based on purely on getting all the openly gay men off of the jury, um, the defense sort of had a had a idea that uh, this was all based on the idea that their principal witness, the guy that Brady Douglas was shooting at, was a closeted gay man, and as openly gay men, they would not uh, they would have a bias against a closeted gay man who was you know using an escort and lying about it to police that they would have a. As as openly gay men, they wouldn't look on that very. So,
1: so, so the prosecutor was uh, perpetrating an interesting stereotype that openly gay men are going to be more sympathetic to the boyfriend of an escort who claims to have been stiffed than to the closeted gay man who it is alleged stiffed him.
0: That's an interesting theory. Yeah, um, zealous advocacy is. is well, as it's, we a, would say. it's a
1: stereotype about gay men and who they're sympathetic with,
0: right? Um, so, anyway, the judge accepted the motion but denied it, ultimately, because he said it looks like uh, the prosecution here has offered uh, n- neutral reasons for why they excuse these two jurors.
1: But do they have to have a reason at all?
0: Well, if you do bring one That's of the challenges... That's
1: peremptor- what peremptories are like. Right. Yeah.
0: But under Batson, right. if you do get a Batson challenge, you, you got to come up with something. Yeah. So, anyway, he was convicted of everything except for a pimping charge and sentenced to six years in state prison. Uh, But now he's on appeal, or he he did appeal, and he contended that he was denied his constitutional rights to a fair trial, equal protection, and a fair and impartial jury when the prosecutor uh, allegedly impermissibly excused two openly gay jurors based solely on their sexual orientation. And the three-judge panel here uh, ruled unanimously in an opinion by Justice Harry E. Hall, Jr., that as a first principle, that they agree that uh, Batson and Wheeler should be extended to sexual orientation. There's not much analysis in the opinion on that point. They sort of just cite to the smith Klein decision from the Ninth Circuit and say it's pretty clear in 2017 that uh, solely excusing jurors based on purely on their sexual orientation is uh, problematic constitutionally. But they spend much more of the opinion determining whether... The trial court erred in concluding that the proffered reasons were non-discriminatory. And then Hall goes into an analysis here where he says, so I understand uh, what defense counsel is saying here. He agrees that it's troubling that there's an assumption that openly gay men may harbor a bias or hostility towards a closeted gay witness. But he offers an alternative suggestion that Douglas may not have fully characterized the nature of the prosecutor's challenge because the record... Um, can also be read to concern, uh, indicate a concern not about these openly gay men's sexual orientation, but rather a concern about their underlying attitude or belief regarding truthfulness. And he says it would be permissible if the prosecutor was trying to ferret out any uh, anyone who would have a bias uh, for or against. Uh, a lying gay person, as, as you just pointed out, as opposed to trying to simply oust all the gay people from serving on the jury. So he sort of posits that if, if the prosecution was um, excusing these guys because they would have a bias against a gay man that was lying about his sexual orientation, that that would be permissible as opposed to simply saying, they're gay men, I want to get them off the jury purely because of that.
1: Or I want to get them off the jury because they'll be sympathetic to the defendant who's a gay man. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of interesting also that uh, a large part of the analysis is devoted to how do we deal with a situation when the prosecutor has good reasons and bad reasons. You know, the, the mixed motive or dual motive type situation. And uh, I find that a very confusing part of the opinion to read. Yes, uh, The court seems to be saying we're going to go under the standard that's been adopted under equal protection cases because this is really uh, the jury uh, a peremptory strike issue. Is It arises as an equal protection issue. Uh, we're going to say that if the prosecutor can prove that they would have struck for the same reasons without regard to the sexual orientation of the potential jurors, then they've got a defense to the Batson charge, uh, the Batson motion. But if it turns out that if these guys hadn't been openly gay, they would never have raised these issues, then perhaps we have a Batson problem. Yeah. And, and we might then need a new trial in this case. So they did remand to, yeah. the, to the trial judge.
0: And they basically – there was a one sentence in the opinion uh, in the transcript from the lower court where the judge sort of talked about why he denied the Batson motion. And basically the appellate court said there's really not enough here on a, for an appellate record for us to say – why the judge decided what he did. So they said we're going to send it back. We're going to err on the side of caution here and send it back for uh, for them to, to provide some more analysis and explanation of what happened here. But we can't conclude on appeal what whether this was permissible or impermissible. And then they went through a variety of options on remand for the ways that courts have considered whether there are when they're both neutral and impermissible reasons for excusing a juror and they ultimately endorse what's called the the mixed motive or dual motivation approach and under that approach after a defendant makes a prima facie showing of discrimination The state may raise the affirmative defense that the strike would have been exercised on the basis of the neutral reasons and in the absence of the discriminatory motive. So it looks like here on remand, the the prosecution has something, some neutral reasons for both of these guys getting excused. Well, Well,
1: certainly the juror who referred to the prosecution based on what his friend told them as the dark side. Unless, you know, when he goes to Star Wars movies, he customarily roots for Darth Vader. You yes. know? Maybe he likes the dark side. Right. We don't know. But the, but the point is that uh, the trial judge is going to have to take a second run at deciding this Batson motion. And if they decide that these two jurors were unconstitutionally disqualified, they're going to have to retry yeah. Douglas.
0: Yeah. Maybe just to add a little more background, uh, but basically this uh, this whole system arose from the – situation in oftentimes in the south where black defendants would get tried for crimes and the prosecution would uh, excuse all black jurors from the jury uh, the juries and it would lead to a situation where black defendants would you know have unfair trials because they were not really entitled they were not allowed to have black jurors on the juries and, and therefore denying them a fair trial
1: uh, they, I mean, the the idea is you're entitled to a jury of your peers, yeah. and if all uh, people who are of the same racial group as you are excluded, then how can you say that it's a jury of your peers?
0: Yeah. So uh, we'll see what happens on remand here. An interesting extension of constitutional pr- principles to sexual orientation.
1: Yeah, and uh, and. I think it would be an episode of a good episode for some TV lawyer show. Yeah, I know. you know, and uh, they can stage especially the, chase, the car chase, the yes. car chase,
0: and the whole thing. All right, uh, we will take our last short break, and when we return for our off-note segment, we'll discuss why Roy Moore is back in the news. We are back to wrap up with our Of segment for this episode. Former Alabama Chief Justice Roy Moore, who we have talked about on numerous occasions on this podcast, uh, has lost his appeal of his suspension. But there is hope for Roy Moore fans for another comeback. Can you tell us why, uh, Art?
1: Yeah, because Roy Moore remains intensely popular with uh, his particular segment of the Alabama population. And he has decided to run for the U.S. Senate. Uh, Although if he doesn't get enough uh, petition signatures by May 19th, he may fall short uh, because uh, the interim senator who was appointed by Governor Bentley before Governor Bentley resigned over a sex scandal, uh, Luther Strange, whose name will be familiar to people who were following the marriage equality litigation, in uh, Alabama, because he was the defendant a lot as attorney of general, musical
0: chairs, musical in chairs Alabama in Alabama. Politics. It's the same
1: handful of guys, yes. you know, who uh, who hang out under suspicious circumstances, <laughs> according to some <laughs> blogs and uh, and websites. But at any rate, uh, so Roy Moore reacted to that first decision back in January 2015, when the federal district judge uh, Callie Grenade, ruled that the Alabama marriage amendment and the Alabama marriage protection act were both unconstitutional. Uh, He went to work doing everything he could to try to prevent that federal district court decision from being implemented to the point of, in his secondary role, his primary role as chief justice, his secondary role is like the chief administrative judge of the Alabama court system. He sent a directive out to the uh, probate judges, you do not issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples because our court, the Alabama Supreme Court, has said they're not allowed to get them, and uh, he... He was basically defying the Supremacy Clause, the proper role of the administrative judge, and so forth, and uh, all kinds of ethical charges were laid against him, and the special court of the judiciary, which decides judicial ethical issues, suspended him from office for the remainder of his elected term, Uh, so uh, the governor appointed an acting uh, chief justice, and in the meanwhile, Moore has a right to appeal this decision to the Alabama Supreme Court, of which he had been a member And not surprisingly, all of his former colleagues on the Alabama Supreme Court recused themselves (laughs) from the case. So they had to come up with an alternative Alabama Supreme Court to decide this case, which is why in in our headline of the story, we say Roy Moore loses reinstatement appeal before, quote unquote, Alabama Supreme Court. It's uh, not your typical voters, Alabama Supreme Court, which is an elective body. Uh, What they did was... uh, the governor and uh, the acting chief justice got together and they set in motion a procedure to put together a list of all the retired judges in Alabama who were still considered competent to sit. You know, at some point, how many of these people are, you know, past it? So the people who they still had their wits together and were physically able to sit. And then they did a lottery and they drew the first seven names and that's going to be the substitute Supreme Court. So the substitute Supreme Court considered uh, the arguments that uh, Roy Moore made on appeal, and they dismissed all of them. They found that the uh, Court of the Judiciary had done a thorough and complete job of analyzing the record and of adopting reasonable interpretations of the ethical rules and applying them to Moore's situation, and they upheld the suspension. He, of course, publicly inveighed against the result. One of his arguments had been that the Supreme Court had no jurisdiction and the uh, Court of uh, the Judiciary had no jurisdiction, and, you know, all kinds of arguments. He was trying to uh, throw a lot of sand in the air. So now he's uh, – he held a press conference uh, shortly after the opinion came out, and he said he's decided to run for the Senate. I mean, he could have decided to run for governor, uh, but I think he tried that once before <laughs> unsuccessfully. <laughs> I think
0: you have to wait a little longer. Yeah. I think the-
1: Well, uh, a, a substitute was appointed for Bentley, and so there will be a special election well, for yes. a new governor, too, coming up. And uh, – the substitute is, is no prize either because she just signed into law a, a bill that allows adoption agencies to refuse to let gay couples adopt if the adoption agency has religious objections to homosexual marriage and homosexuality. It's, you know, but, par for the course in Alabama.
0: But thankfully, we did not get the religious liberty order everyone was fearing uh, from Trump yesterday. Yeah,
1: now you're anticipating the June issue of law yeah. Notes, but uh rumors were swirling that the executive order draft that was leaked in february was the model for a draft that the president was going to sign on national prayer day uh when he had all of the his favorite right-wing religious types at the white house for a breakfast uh and he pulled a switcheroo on everybody it seems uh, he was not willing to sign that one instead he signed one that the ACLU concluded after some analysis was so harmless that they're not going to file suit. He basically said to the IRS, look, be a little lax in enforcing that provision that says uh, religious organizations can't participate in political activities. And you know what? They've been a little lax. That was uh, an amendment to the tax code that was put forward by Lyndon Johnson way back when he was majority leader of the Senate in the 1950s. that uh, religious organizations with a 501c3 non-tax-exempt uh, status may not endorse candidates or engage in substantial overt political activity, or they would uh, endanger their tax exemption. It seems that only one church in the intervening more than half a century that this provision has been in effect has ever lost their tax exemption for outrageous electioneering right there on the pulpit in favor of a particular candidate. Uh and the only other religious organization that has been investigated is a liberal church that was charged with, uh, uh, engaging in, uh, political activities in support of some liberal candidate. So, uh, what the news reports have told us is that there was a big sigh of relief, uh, from, uh, the gay community, of course, but that the, uh, executive order that the president signed was not greeted with rapture by the religious right because they wanted the draft that went around in February that would basically say that uh, federal employees can refuse to deal with same-sex couples et cetera I mean it was really it was a and the other show.
0: thing is uh, some commentators point out there are liberal churches as well so if you right. open this can of worms there are right.
1: liberal churches can endorse candidates too you know uh, but but then they they interviewed a lot of people both conservative and liberal religious leaders and they all said look, We don't want to endorse candidates. We don't want to get into that. We don't want to, you know, candidates knocking on our doors and lobbying us to endorse them and stuff. Let's keep religion separate from politics. And with the exception of uh, some, mainly some very hard right uh, religious groups, evangelical groups, and stuff like that, they want to stay out of politics. They don't want to mingle in it. After all, what did Christ say on this subject? Rendered to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And Although, that underlies the whole concept of separation back, of church and state.
0: <laughs> to bring this back, Roy Moore is not someone who thinks like that. Roy, oh, no. Roy no. sees a, no separation between church no. and state, which is why he got in so much trouble. Right,
1: because he considered Alabama a theocracy, and the Alabama Supreme Court was the definitive expositor of Scripture.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. On that note, uh, we'll, call it a, we'll call it a podcast. That's all the time we have. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in June.